0: Today's scripture is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Redemption. How are you? Good. I see a few familiar faces out there, but for the most part, I don't know you. So let me give a quick introduction. My name is Eric. How you doing? Yeah, all right. I know we're in a new setting this morning for you guys, but I don't know the difference either way. So um, I am, uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff at a church nearby here, and um, I have been kind of a fan of redemption from a distance for a good while now. The pastors have been gracious enough to allow me to sit in on the preaching collectives um, that take place and then Sean allowed me to kind of come in and, and step in here this morning. So I'm grateful for that. Um, just kind of this odd coincidence is that Sean's uh, kids and my oldest son go to the same school, all right And um, if you've ever been there, you have this, uh, this a- a- exiting situation inside the parking lot where there's two cars next to each other. And so the other day I saw him, I don't think he has any clue this happened. He's waving. And I, like, look over there, I'm like, oh, yeah, hey, Sean, what's up? And I'm kind of, like, doing this, and then I see him even more vigorously, like, waving. I'm like, hey, man, what's up? It's good. Good to see you, bro. You know, hey, and I look in front of me and realize that his kid is standing in front of my car, and he's waving at his kid, all right? And I tried to pull it off like this, but his kid looked at me kind of, like, with that eye, like, I saw that, man. You, you did not get away with that one. So, well, anyways, we're going to continue... Um, this morning in Ephesians, I know you guys have been walking through it kind of slowly over the last couple of um, weeks and even maybe a couple months. Um, and uh, there's a few things as we jump in that I want to um, talk about with the, with the structure of what's happening. First of all, um, is that this section is going to start kind of a new thought in a new direction. And up until this point, as you've been going through Ephesians 1, you've heard all kinds of, of great things that the Father has bestowed upon you through the Son... You've been been called holy, chosen, blameless, found, forgiven, adopted, predestined, redeemed, sealed in the Holy Spirit, and that all of it was done because of the power of God. And in this section, we're going to kind of take a little shift towards uh, towards something new. And it's going to first address who we were before all of those things happened. It's going to deal with that personally, and then it's going to move on to a more communal sense of what reconciliation looks like Um, in in a broader sense. So this text today um, is also something that's going to be, it's coupled with next week's text, okay? So I'm going to challenge you to read that. Not right now. Let me get through the sermon first, right? I'm going to challenge you to read that the next week. Um, But today, you should kind of walk away from today feeling a little bit unsettled. And I want to challenge you this morning, please don't run from that. It's easy for us to kind of feel the, the, the depths of things, the darkness of things, and want to walk away from that and run to the grace as fast as we can. But the honest truth is that sometimes we don't fully understand the grace and the beauty of what the Savior has done for us unless we spend some time inside of the darkness. So please don't run from the uncomfortability of that this morning. We're going to go through it just piece by piece, and in some cases, word by word. Go ahead and um, turn your Bibles right now to Ephesians chapter 2. Click there. Um, And and as we get there, I just want to set it up with this this one story. I remember when I was a little kid, and um, I had my first encounter with death. All right? It wasn't a human. It was a puppy. All right? You guys good? I was expecting a little bit of a reaction right there, all right? And what had happened is my aunt's dog had had... A, a, a litter, all right, and, and a few weeks later, I remember just sitting in the backyard watching, we fed the, the mother, and I kind of knew as a kid, we were always taught and trained, like, don't, don't mess with a dog when it's eating, right, they can be kind of unpredictable, I remember even thinking in that moment, I was in third grade, I think, and I remember thinking in that moment, don't you know not to mess with a dog when, you're, when they're eating, and in this just quick moment, I saw the mother's head snap down, the puppy yelped and fell over, all right, so as a third grader, I watched that. And I kind of ran up, kind of excited, and, and, and chewing all the dogs. All the dogs kind of ran away, and there's this one puppy laying on the floor. My mom heard the yelp, and so she came out, and I remember saying, Mom, I picked up the dog. I said, Mom, we've got to take her to the dog doctor. And she just said, Honey, it's, it's too late. The puppy is already dead. And that, that moment, that kind of, that <laughs> settles in you. There's something that happens in something that it's settled in the pit of my stomach, not just for days, but for weeks on end. That took place inside of me. I remember kind of replaying the moment out inside of my head. And though in our culture, we tend to be kind of insulated from those things, whether it's a T-bone steak, we don't know quite what happens, all of the the messiness of that that happens for us to walk into a restaurant and and eat something like that. Or if it's something more like, like when somebody passes away, we're not responsible for preparing the bodies anymore. But somebody does. We pay somebody to do those things. And it creates a separation or insulation from us. But in Paul's time, they were more they were more closely related to us. The proximity to those moments wasn't as distant. I think for all of us, if we were to pass around a microphone, we could say to every single person, You've maybe had a moment in your life where you saw the before and after, you experienced death, you realized. That you underestimated the permanence of it or the seriousness of it. The brevity of that situation became very clear to you in a moment. And it does something to you. It changes who you are. It creates and cultivates a, a type of reverence inside of your heart for a moment like that. Not intentionally trying to be grotesque or or, or dark this morning, but, but what we need to do is I want you to kind of remember that moment. Hold it inside of you because that's the metaphor that Paul is going to use in the scriptures today. He wants us to feel the proximity of that moment as he engages us with this metaphor that he is going to talk about this morning. So let's read this together. Ephesians 2 verse 1. (laughs) As for you, you were dead. You were dead. Don't minimize the language there. Don't run from it, all right? You weren't just limping, and if you had a cast on, that was a low blow, Sean, sorry. No, we had a cast moment here. You are not just limping. You get a cast, you take it off, and things are back to normal. You're not just unhealthy, and with the right kind of exercise, the right kind of diet, you can nurse yourself back to health. You weren't just sick, and if you took the right medicine, all of that changes, and you'll be better in a couple of weeks, It's not just lacking wholeness, dead. You were dead. And Paul's use of this metaphor is so significant because it allows for no middle ground. There isn't a kind of dead, there isn't a possibly dead, there is either alive or there is dead. And there's a few characteristics of death that I want to call to mind this morning. Death is often defined as separation. And in this case, we're talking about separation from God, but think about the little separations you experience. If you've walked through or had a parent who walked through divorce, there is a death of something that occurred and it feels like death. If disunity is caused within a church, that separation is like a little representation of death amongst the body and we can sometimes participate in the ministry of death via separating ourselves from people when it is not supposed to happen. The second that dead things don't do anything. It sounds simple, but think about it. They don't move. They don't respond. They can't engage when stimuli is enacted upon them. One commentator said this, a corpse is insensible. It sees not, it hears not, and it feels not. They don't make decisions. Something that's dead does not move, and it cannot spark the fire of life from within it. And dead people don't partic- participate in the ministry of life. <clears throat> now, um, for some of us, we kind of have this pushback. Are you saying that, that people who don't know Jesus can't do good things? And I have a couple of answers to that because I didn't grow up in a Christian household. I, didn't, I, didn't, um, I, I, didn't, I wasn't cultivated by Christian schools um, or go to Sunday school um, every morning um, like, like many people have. And so um, what would happen is it only took me maybe two months before I heard this for the first time, you shouldn't have sex before marriage, I literally in that moment looked to my friend next to me and said, "Are you? do you seriously believe this? Because, listen, me coming at that 16 or 17 years later, I had an entire framework of morality behind me. There was a system of ethics by which I thought I knew what was good and what was bad. And up to that point, I was told a different story, that this is just something healthy teenagers kind of explore at a certain time of their life. As long as it's consensual, as long as there are certain parameters, you're not abusive, you're not, um, you're not trying to force somebody into anything. There was this whole thing that I had backed up, walked in with this, and they're telling me something different. Up to this point, I thought I was responsible. I was good. I was doing what was told to me as moral, as right, as what I was supposed to do. And so I had a decision to make. I could either reject what I just heard or allow it to course correct my life. And I think oftentimes, for those of us who came in from the outside, there's a point wherein you have to realize that the scriptures are an authority. I think for those of you who grew up in this, that sometimes you were just told that your kind of lifestyle agreed with it already and you didn't have to do much. Maybe even a greater work of self-reflection needs to take place in that moment. The second thing is, is this. I do believe that there's this remnant of God's goodness. It's reverberating since the beginning of time. God created everything good and then we see things don't go so well and we've got this kind of sense of of a reverberation of God's goodness, also being sown out in the scriptures as God's people engage with the world. So there is representations of God's goodness circulating throughout the world. And I do think at times, people who don't know Jesus, they agree with those things and they, they act in those things. But listen, the source of it, the source of it was still God. He is the source that is, that, that is all-knowing, all-good, who gets to decide the difference between good and evil. As dead people, listen to me, we are, you are completely and utterly dependent upon God for life, for knowledge, and for the source of what is good. Let's keep reading. It said this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This verse tells us that the cause of our death is is twofold, trespasses and sins. I want to get to those individually just in a minute, but before, there's a little bit of history that we have to dig into because we have to come to terms with this one idea this morning, that we are broken, that we are fallen, death-filled sinners. Amen? Somebody nudge the person next to you and just say, this isn't going to be a Joel Osteen kind of morning, all right? (laughs) And we have to rest and settle with those things because in our history... We know that we have sin nature. We inherited it. We are the benefactors of the original sin through our fleshly association with Adam. There's a communal inheritance which we partake in whether we like it or not, and by extension, we have inherited death. Now, as good Western individualists, most of us have a problem with that. And my guess is, though, if, if this was a good inheritance, like, say, if you can prove that you were uh, connected somehow through your lineage to Adam, I'm going to give you $5 million. Every single one of us is pulling out our phones. We're on Ancestry.com, and we're trying to figure out some way we can find a way to connect ourselves to that. And so we have to come to terms with this idea. As much as we have a difficulty um, to, 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 to handle those things, um, what I want to do is to replay a moment that happened for me. Because in some ways, I don't know that it matters, that we can, that we can get back to it in a theological sense. It matters. But when it comes out, it plays out relationally. Uh, this is what someone said to me. I said, why is it that I'm held responsible for something some guy thousands of years did before me? I don't even know him. I didn't know his name until you told me his name. And he said this, if that's hard for you to believe, are you arrogant enough to think that you would have done any better? Now, in the moment I was defensive in my head, though, I'm like, God, he got me. I can't argue with that logic because in the end, I knew I wish I could push back, I wish I could say, nah, but I I know me, I know who I am, and every once in a while I want to get a little edge in on something, and if you pointed out that there's a tree out there that I'm not supposed to touch, I'm going to be staring at that tree, kind of from a distance, and creeping in a little bit more, and a little bit more, right? And so there's a sense where even the theology of that doesn't matter, because the weight of our individual sin tells us the truth, that we would have done the same thing, because listen, you were sinful out the womb. In a little bit, verse 3 is going to affirm this by saying we are by nature children of wrath. But hey, if you're a parent in here, you're already like, amen. I knew as soon as I got that kid home something was wrong. Where's the return (laughs) policy? I haven't slept in weeks. And so we know that there's something about that, and St. Augustine would agree with you. In fact, he wrote a whole book about it, wherein he details every single sin that he could think of that he committed since birth, starting with, I didn't care about my mother. Feed me, and I will cry until you do what I'm telling you to do. It doesn't matter if there's other people that need to be taken care of in this family system. I am the most important thing here. So listen, the burden of your fleshly inheritance it's been weighed on the scales of God's justice, and we have been found guilty in that. Right, so let's, let's take a look at these two words, trespasses and sins. Starting with trespass, this, this word has an, a, a pretty interesting connotation. You have been given parameters by which God has told you to live based off of his holy law. He says, here it is, it's fenced in, it's good and safe, stay in here. And the idea of trespasses means that we have either accidentally or intentionally wandered outside of the parameters that God has given. Pastor Brian Chappell says this, it's a good description, you were walking after a path that was away from God. It's not going into forbidden territory, it's going out of sacred territory. You walked away from the life that God had designed by his holy laws and commands. And so God gave us this this, uh, this set of parameters. We're hanging out in that, and we say, I wonder what it's like to go out there. And eventually, our trespass leads us into that area. And sins has more to do with kind of a fleshly understanding. It deals with the flesh, and refer, it refers to our inclinations, our deeds, our thoughts, that are an attempt to do what is right, but we fail to miss the mark. I think the classic kind of uh, illustration that you hear is like when you have a bullseye and you shoot an arrow, you know what you're supposed to do. You know you're supposed to hit the middle of that bullseye, but you just can't quite seem to do it. And so we have this intentionality to our sin, and then we have this other sense wherein we attempt to do what's right, but no matter what we do, we can't accomplish it. And these words, these two words, they describe the evil that controls and characterizes human life. From God. As we pull back from the details though, we can realize that there's some implications to the text that's going on. One is that our actions, we can't get ourselves out of this, you guys. There is no good old American pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get moving. That's completely gone in this situation. We don't have it in and of ourselves. In fact, Romans says that even your good deeds, are but filthy rags before the righteousness of God. (laughs) Only Christ is the spark that lights the fire of life and sets you on a trajectory of good deeds. And so hear, hear this. Our sin tendency is both the cause and the evidence of the death that is within us. You sin because you're a sinner, and you are a sinner because you sin. Okay, so hear me again. You have to realize this this morning. You are completely and utterly dependent upon God's grace. You must have that. The next verse is going to broaden our understanding of this, um, this depth, and it shows how communal it actually is, that we are actually completely. Uh, participating in a communal type of death together so verse 1 again you were dead in your trespasses and sins and verse 2 in which you once walked okay so so we are dead people walking okay i'm sure there's a walking dead joke in there somewhere right i'm going to spe- you know i tried to think of something good rest in peace Glenn i don't know you know it's too soon sorry guys Did i just sorry spoiler alert i'm sorry okay listen I'm going to spare you the zombie joke. If you got a good one, come tell me afterwards, and I'll sneak it into that next service. But listen, this is what the scripture begs the question, though, because it's logically impossible. So what does a dead person look like? If we are dead people walking, what, what, what description do we have in order to understand what that even means? The good thing is that Paul tells us. He gives us a really great description of this. This is what it says. Following, or better translated, mastered by, all right? So mastered by the course of this world. And the other thing that we have to come into terms with, that we have to embrace and understand, is that we live in a broken, fallen, death-filled world. Not only that, but as dead people walking, we were mastered by it. And once again, we have history to this It reaches back again to the rebellion in, in, in Genesis chapter 3. The world following the course of God at that time was perfect. It was holy. It was shalom. It was paradise. And then the actions of Adam and Eve, partaking of the fruit, changed the course, the direction of that world. And everything is different. Listen to the way Genesis 2:17 puts it. But the tree of life, or sorry, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in it, this is his warning. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Paradise is lost. Death comes flooding into our world. And the consequence now is that we're set on a completely different trajectory. And this trajectory is estrangement from God. Walking away from him and what he has created, the world is hostile in its force against God and his people. We see inside of this that the very fabric of humanity was torn. And so the relationship that once was between us and God, close, walking with him in the garden, it was torn, it was broken. The relationships we have from human to human without disruption, without anger, greed, jealousy, covetousness. It's torn. And now there's enmity between us. There's enmity between each other as we engage in community. The fabric of creation itself was torn. There's a disruption to the natural order of things. So we have earthquakes. We have tornadoes. We have hurricanes and all kinds of natural disasters wherein this earth itself is crying out, groaning, rebelling against the way God had created it originally. Our biophysiological entity, our being, is malfunctioning. And so there are cells in our body that go rogue and multiply rapidly, creating a cancer that wants to destroy us. We're susceptible to illness. And every day, we're growing just a little bit older, and our bodies are decaying. There are social systems that are defective, imperfect government, structural sin, and systemic strongholds. And as dark as this kind of tunnel can go, if you you keep walking down and dwelling on these things, it can get pretty dark and it causes us to say things like god why is this like this why is there so much pain in the world why is there suffering why is all of this happening and i actually think that the understanding this coming to terms with this is comfort because all the while god is just whispering to you this isn't the way it was meant to be this is not the way that i created this to work And so it's meant to push us, point us, make us look back to him so that we realize that he is the one that tells us the way things are meant to be. And it course corrects our ideas of what good and evil are. We go to him as our source. In a lot of ways, I think that our world um, is is like a, a current um, I, I grew up in Bullhead City. You can console me for that later, right? If anyone of you have been there, nothing good comes from there, all right? <laughs> Bullhead City, Arizona. Um, and one of the good things about it is that we have the Colorado River that runs right through it. And so it was just kind of part of the normal culture for me and all of our friends that we would go tubing or, or just kind of swim down uh, the, the Colorado River. Has anyone been swimming down a river or tubing, right? One of those fake ones at a, at a park. Yeah. Okay, cool. We're good. And what would happen is, at times, we would have one of us, would, would, we'd drive up, we'd leave a car in on one end, drive up, jump into the river, and then the current would just sweep you down, all right? And and if you just did nothing, if you don't push back against it, you just kind of sit back and, and, and relax. It's going to carry you still swiftly down in one direction the course and the trajectory that this river is going. And if you want it to work against it, if you want to turn around and swim as hard as you can, it doesn't matter how strong of a swimmer you are, you might be able to stay in one point for a while. You may make a couple of feet, but eventually you get exhausted. The river overwhelms you and you acquiesce to it and just keep floating down the river. And if we think about this as a metaphor for the way the world is, the world is working in current against God, moving us away from Him as our source. And many of us are just relaxing, letting it take us. Some of us, probably all of us at times, who are passionate about our sin are swimming with it as fast as we can away from God. And at times we do pretty good and we fight against it but we cannot keep up with that. The only way to get out of this current is for someone to stick out a hand and say, let me get you off of this, into the sh- onto the shore and out of this river. I've got you. And so there's this, this sense of current that we are, 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 are immersed. Ultimately, ultimately, we need to realize this idea that even the dead that come to life, are living in a death-filled world that is continually working against the ways of God, and we're caught up, we're mastered, is what the scriptures told us, mastered by its current. So up to this point, all right, Joel Osteen would have a heart attack, and we would have recognized that we are sinners in and of our own right, that we have a personal Um, a, a sin nature, tendency towards that that drives us away from God and that we are in and mastered by the course of this world which is going in the opposite direction as God. Hear me one more time. You are absolutely, utterly, and completely dependent upon God. I'm going to repeat that enough times that if you walk out of this room and it's the only thing you remember, please hear that. You are absolutely, completely, utterly dependent on God. I want us to check out just one more factor here. We're going to keep reading. It says, following, again, remember, to be mastered by, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Did you catch that? The third thing we need to come to terms with is that there is a determined enemy who is intentionally enacting a force of disobedience. And as dead people who are walking before Christ has enlivened anyone, we are mastered by it. In fact, the wording that was used is, is that it infers that we are his children. So, so let's break that down just a little bit. For some of you reading it, you, you read it like I did the first time. The prince of the power of what? The who? What's going on here? And so in in, in ancient Israel, there was a common belief that the evil spirits kind of lived between the earth and in the atmosphere, between the earth and the heavens. And Paul is playing off of this ideology and saying the one we're dealing with is the prince of those, the chief, the one who is in charge of all of those little ones that you guys like to talk about. And then it calls us children of it, the spirit of whom was at work within us, the sons of disobedience. It, gets even, uh, it goes even further into that metaphor in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. And so the enemy takes it upon himself, the prince of the power of the air, to tempt us. He wants us to embrace very overt things like laziness and greed and covetousness and wrath and sexual immorality. These are overt sins. I'm not diminishing those things, but those are kind of the ones that are in your face. I heard a guy um, once say to me, um, you know, all of us kind of know when something's obvious and the enemy doesn't quite do that. So if, if somebody opened the door and it was like, a very obvious, scantily clad person at your door, you kind of know, oh, nope, got to get out of this situation, right? But it's not that. It's a cultivated relationship over time where you share information with somebody who you don't share with others. And intimacy is cultivated. But that's really, <laughs> adultery, adultery never starts with something that overt. And so I think the enemy wants us to embrace these overt things, but then he shifts our thinking and he wants to hide things covertly in different ways. One of those ways is by attacking who you are. The enemy wants you to believe things that are not true. So where the scriptures have said you are holy, chosen, blameless, found, forgiven, adopted, redeemed, all of those things that are true from Ephesians 1, the enemy wants to whisper, you're unwanted. You're worthless. You're powerless over this addiction. You've got nothing of value Within you. You're guilty. God can't make you clean. You're guilty. And so he etches away at who we are, at our identity. And I think he has this other tactic. I would consider it even more insidious than the first two. Though there are exceptions to this rule, I think we can identify people who are just outright kind of evil, malicious people, right? There's a handful of those people in the world. But for the most part, all of us... All right, like this, we didn't wake up this morning and think to ourselves, hmm, I wonder how I can serve the dark Lord this morning to enact evil and death upon the world, right? Anyone? (laughs) Good, I was hoping nobody would raise their hand. Most of us don't start there, but you did probably wake up this morning and think to yourself, some version of how will I pursue my own happiness today? What is it that I can do? Because listen, we do and think based off of our selfish desires, our personal betterment. We live according to the passions of our flesh. The scriptures just said it. We carry out the desires of our body and mind. So I used to do ministry in New Orleans um, for six years, and um, I, I would hang out at a certain coffee shop down there. And realized eventually that a lot of the, the people who are part of the satanic church would also hang out in here. And so they thought it was funny to get the, the, the satanic priest and the Christian pastor to kind of hang out and have conversations together. Just a normal Tuesday, by the way, in New Orleans, all right? And, and get them to, like, argue. And so we would hang out. Me and Robert is his name, okay? Let me, let me draw this picture for you. Robert looked like something that came out of a Mad Max film, okay? Half of what he wore on a regular day kind of looked like armor, all right, patchwork quilt of leather and other weird things, crazy Euro mullet. All right, it was it was wild. But he was a nice guy. He was very charismatic. Everywhere he went, there was an entourage of people following him, wanting to know what he thought about things. It was like a rabbi with his disciples going everywhere with him. So we would have these conversations, and the one thing Robert always wanted me to understand, he repeated this often. Like, We're not devil worshipers, Eric. That's primitive. We don't believe in things like that. What we do believe is the doctrines of the satanic church. Oh, cool, Robert. Tell me more about that, right? <laughs> and, and this is, listen, where we have our own Greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything is outward focused. Did you catch that? They have their own greatest commandment. And it's this. Thine own will, your will, is the whole of the law. You decide what good and evil is. Truth exists around whatever you want to define that as you decide what, what the difference of morality is, your will is the law, your desires are most important. You define right and wrong, you're the focus of a life well lived on this earth. That's what they taught. Do you see how deceitful that is? Because all of us want a little bit of me time, right? And there's definitely appropriate self care parameters. I would say we still struggle at discerning where that should end because we always kind of want a little bit more for ourselves, right? Treat yourself, right? <laughs> but but listen, you can call it hedonism, you can call it selfishness, but the sin is the same as it has been from the beginning of time. You are the God of your own idolatry. The serpent whispered it to Adam and Eve and he is still whispering to us today, the satanist gets this. They revolve their lives around it, and there, um, there is a point where we have to realize the attempt of the enemy is to get us to indulge ourselves on us. The Bible says this: the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires, we're putting it back together of the body and of the mind, and were by nature. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, let's just take a quick deep breath. Let's pause for just a second, okay? When you um, came this morning, my thinking probably uh, is right in in thinking that you didn't come here. It was a bright, sunny day. You put on your Sunday vest. You put little Jimmy into the children's check-in area, right? You walked down the hall and you greeted your friend, you know. Praise the Lord, brother, and a double praise the Lord to you. That's what I thought of you guys all when I first came to know Jesus, all right? All right? That you didn't think you were going to come in here and there's a guest speaker who, and let me recap it for you, all right, who was going to tell you that you're a sinner filled with death, mastered by the ways of this world, child of Satan. (laughs) But here we are. And it's not me saying this. We just read the scriptures together and the scriptures are telling us this is who we were. And we have a decision to make. And this morning, we want to call you to remember and to reflect on what has happened as we've engaged these scriptures. There's a historic practice of Judeo-Christianity. It always has been there for us to remember the depths from which we came so that it would cultivate a praise inside of us that we would understand the light that we receive because we realize where we came from. The Passover is meant to do this. Good Friday is meant to do this. It's a liturgical adherence so that we can continually remember from whence we came and fully appreciate the salvation that God offers. And it also brings us into reflection a moment of diagnostic where we get to evaluate our lives and decide where we stand In accordance to these scriptures, perhaps you underestimated this morning the depths of your sin. Perhaps you underestimated the death from which you came. Or you underestimated the importance of coming to terms with the implications of it. Sometimes I think we fool ourselves into thinking, well, I've got Jesus, but I was pretty good. So now I'm like double good, me and Jesus. Let's do this. Jesus, right? If that's you this morning, though, hear me. You don't know the gospel. Because it's not you and Jesus, it's just Jesus. He is the only one that we have. Sometimes I think it feels exaggerative, is it hyperbole? Come on, death, is that really what he meant? Yes. And if you believe that that's just exaggeration, that tells me that you're still acting somewhat in the ideology, that you can kind of still do it yourself, that you can pull yourself up, that you have it in and of yourself, the fortitude to be able to bring your dead carcass back to life. That's not the gospel. And likewise, because of God's holiness in our sin, we have to realize that we deserve to be left there. God would have been just had he done so. And as much as we want to reject that, we have to realize those things so that we know our need for God. One preacher said this, Jesus Christ didn't come to make bad people good. He made He came to make dead people alive. So hear me this morning, without Christ, Redemption Church, listen, without Christ, you are dead. You didn't just need a hand up, you weren't simply bad, listen, you needed resurrection. And the beautiful, powerful thing, the thing that we get to know is that we know the one who has the power to bring the dead back to life, amen? Somebody excited about that this morning. I'm going to end just with this, this one quick story. Um, I had an opportunity to hang out with the pastor. Um, he had been through many seasons, just kind of a guy towards the end of his life, a life well lived, very fruitful. And in the context of our of our time hanging out, we were just over there having drinks with him and his wife. It was a ministry school, all of us hanging out. And the idea was just this, this guy's so wise that at some point he's going to say something that all of us are just going to benefit from and it's going to change the trajectory of your life. I didn't realize that that was all going to be directed at me in the moment, but here I am, hanging out with this guy. He's a couple of, of, of glasses of wine in, okay? Can I say that? He's starting to get loud. He's passionate. What I didn't realize is two weeks before one of his closest friends had died, this person helped him create the ministry that they brought together. And so he, he's sitting down with me, very intense. He's leaning in. I'm leaning in, in this moment. And as we're talking, he starts to talk about the different ways that people respond to death. And he says, you know, I understand that all things work together for the good of those who love him. I understand the sovereignty of God, but sometimes I think we use that as an excuse that we embrace death too easily. And, and then I'm in this moment thinking, I'm in a moment right now. If I could step out and look at myself, I'm going to say, pay attention to what he's about to say because this is a crazy moment. Here I am. Everyone else in the room stops talking because they realize this is important. His eyes start to well up, and this is what he says to me Young man, listen to me. God hates death. He hates it so much that he sent his son to the cross so that he could kill it forever. So redemption, listen, yes, you were born in sin. Yes, you were dead. But we were not meant to stay there. And God chose not to leave us in that moment. I want to call us this morning to praise him for what he has done as we respond through song. And during our response time this morning, but hear me um, with this final, just last, last thing. Recognize, please, we are calling you this morning to recognize your deep need for a savior, and as a response, simply to collapse upon the adequacy of God's love for you. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, thank you so much for what you have, what you have done, and thank you for allowing us to remember what it was like to unsettle us and to have us not run from that this morning, Lord, so that we can the depths of your grace even more so. Let us praise you this morning, God, and if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, would they realize, come to terms with and approach you, run hard and fast into the arms of you? We trust you, Holy Spirit, to soften hearts and make that happen this morning. We ask for this all in the name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen.